So, um, so let's uh, we'll get started if you guys are ready. And uh, just once again, let me say hello, welcome, glad you're here. Um, thank you for your commitment. Today is my 26th wedding anniversary. It's also Karen's 26th anniversary, by the way. Thank you, thank you. And um, we're here tonight hanging out with you guys talking about church history instead of out somewhere celebrating. So does that say commitment? No, I'm not going to save the money. I'm going to have to go somewhere this weekend for sure. Yeah, it's not like I'm getting out of it, Mac. Come on. You know better than that. You're sitting right there with Wendy. So you know better than that. But, uh, yeah, we're uh, married 26 years. That's a long time, isn't it? I mean, not for me, but for Karen. That's got to seem like an eternity, I'm thinking. And, uh, goodness sakes, that's a long time. I was trying to think. 26 years ago today... We're probably headed down to Charleston about now. But anyway, glad to be here with you guys tonight. So, we've come a long way, haven't we? Man, we have covered a lot of ground in just a few weeks' time. And uh, tonight we're going to get into probably my... Man, I don't want to say it's my favorite time in history, but it's, it's right there with... The American Revolutionary War time period, the 1700s, and uh, and then the Gettysburg Civil War, that sort of thing. I, I love the Reformation. In fact, I just, in full disclosure, tell you that um, I started teaching church history, doing this survey, so we could get to this point right here. And uh, I know that when I say something like the Protestant Reformation, that it sounds like some dusty old question or subject that you would have to deal with in, you know, your high school world history class or maybe on a college exam in Western civilization. But the Protestant Reformation is the foundation of the modern world. I'm going to try not to be too wordy tonight, so I want you to I want you to let those words, you know, drop in. They mean something. The Protestant Reformation is the foundation of the modern world, and I hope to be able to prove that to you tonight. Um, the Protestant Reformation is foundational to the fundamental Christian beliefs that you and I have as Protestant evangelicals. I know you guys have blank notes out there, and you can't write all this stuff down. If you want a copy of my notes, just just let me know, and I'll send them to you. But let me just quickly run through some of the beliefs. The authority of Scripture. I mean, really and truly, if you think about it, like the... It's what we gather around each week. Now, we gather, of course, to worship God. But what do we gather around? We don't gather around a, a group of traditions, do we? I mean, we have some traditional things or things that we do regularly. But we're not gathered in the name of those traditions, are we? 
What's the authority for our gathering at all? It's the scriptures. That was not why the church, at least in the Middle Ages, gathered up. Uh, Beliefs like having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That comes out of the Reformation. Salvation by faith alone. Not works. Not faith and something. Not works and faith, but faith alone. The independence... And authority of the local church. You know, from time to time, I have to remind folks that, um, you know, our church is not supported by, um, you know, the bishop in Rome. Or the Baptist State Convention. Or, you know, we are our own church. Sometimes you'll have people ask um, well, what's the authority of the church? Who owns the church? Who controls the church? And when I explain that we own it as the members, that it's an independent church, they're like, what? How, how does that happen? That, that comes out of the Reformation. Uh, the priesthood of the believer. You heard of that before? Have you heard of that doctrine, the priesthood of the believer? Which means that you can have direct access with God through Jesus Christ as your your high priest. That comes out of the Reformation. Um, Reading the Bible in our native language. The importance of mass education and public education. The importance of individual people. Now let that sink in for just a minute. I mean, ju- just think about the Middle Ages again. You know, the, the medieval age, the dark ages. Part of what made it dark was mass death. I mean, if you, if you have people dying all around you, after a while, human life is devalued. And then when you have a, a caste system that they had, you know, the, the feudal system where you have lords and serfs, well, I mean, at that point, peasants, the only reason they even exist is to support the upper class. So if the upper class doesn't need them, they're of no value. But during the Reformation, the importance of individual people um, comes through again. And by the way, all of these beliefs are from the New Testament. It's not, it's not like the church just switched leaders and got a whole different group to come up with new traditions. What happens with the Reformation is you have leaders that take the church back to the Scriptures. And so all of those beliefs that I just rattled off to you, they come right out of the New Testament. But they've been lost for centuries and centuries. And it was the Protestant Reformation that went back to these that pulled them out again. And I say it once more, they they are foundational to our beliefs as evangelical Christians. Listen. They're foundational to the whole Western world. They're foundational 
to the founding of the United States of America. I think we did a talk on that just a while back. Um, There would not be the United States like we know the United States today. There would not be the Western world like we know it today were it not for the Protestant Reformation. So if I was to ask you, what is the Protestant Reformation? What, What does that mean? How would you define it? Well, you need to break those words down just a little bit. So Protestant, what does that mean? It's, it's protesters. B- by the way, which was a new thing at the, in the high, late, middle ages and going into the Renaissance and then the Reformation, for people to be able to protest anything, that, that, was, a, that was quite a thing. But a Protestant is a protester. What is the Reformation about? Well, if you're going to reform something, that means that the thing you're reforming is deformed. Right? So you have not like a a group of guys who come up, and ladies, you'll forgive me if I say a group of guys because there are some girls scattered along in here, but it's mostly a man's world back then, so we're mostly talking about men, but it's not like a group of guys said, you know what, we're going to start a new team. We're, they're the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to be the, we're going to be the blue team. They're the red team. We're the blue team. That's how we're going to, we're going to do this thing. Instead, these protesters, and I'll show you some examples tonight. These protesters were, they were a part of the church. So their, their protest and their call for reforms for, for most of them, and I mean the biggies, like the ones that we really know, like the John Husses of the world, the John Wycliffe's, the Martin Luther's, their idea was never to split the church. It was never about dividing the church. It was always about reforming the church. They were just protesting, saying, hey, wait a minute, we're doing things the wrong way. We're, we're doing church based on a set of traditions that may or may not, in, in most cases, at least the things they were protesting, are, they're not even in the New Testament. And instead, we, we have leaders over time who have just developed these traditions, and that's the way we do church, but it's all based on tradition. It's not based on the New Testament. So we protest we say, go back to the New Testament and do things according to the Scriptures. So these protesters wanted to reform the church. Now what happens, ultimately, is you have the division. So you have a little bit of reformation. But essentially what you left, or what you have left at the end of it is the Roman Catholic Church that still operates for the most part the way it always had, but then you have the creation of new churches based on the New Testament that are now called protester churches, Protestant churches. 
Today, for the most part, they're called um, Protestant evangelical, but they're churches that came out of the great protest. So if you're going to have a reformation, you've got to have a deformation. So just to open up this file in your minds, let's talk a little bit about what they're protesting. And I'm going to summarize about 900 years of history right here, okay? So again, like with with all these subjects, we can't talk about everything, but we can hit the highlights. What what um, what are the factors that go into this Protestant Reformation? I mean, what what makes this happen? Well, there are cultural things, social things, political things, and religious things. Let's talk about one of the cultural things. Well, cultural, societal, I think you could put these in the same group. Um, the first one is poverty. There's just poverty. It, it's, it's, it's all over Europe. And what you see is the social system of feudalism began to collapse. Feudalism is just the, it's the caste system. It's the belief that there is a, a natural selection of things and that every person is born in the place they belong. So... So, if you, were, um, if you were born into a peasant family, Bob, that's God's way of saying you're born a peasant. Who are we to say, who are we to argue with God? You're always going to be a peasant. You're always going to be a farmer or you're, whatever it, it is that you're born into, that's what you're going to be. Now, hopefully... You're born into one of these noble families. You're born into a lord's family. You're born into the landowner family. You're, you're born into the upper crust. Because see, right now in history, you, you only have two classes. You have the upper class and the lower class. You have the ruling class, the merchant class, and you have the, the bottom class. There's, there's not any in between. There's, there's not a middle class. And there's no movement. Once you're born into that system, wherever you're born, that's where you stay. So it, it wasn't a matter of, hey, you can work hard and save your money. And, you know, you, your brother and uh, or maybe you have four brothers and all of you work hard and you save your money. You put it together and one day you can buy the family farm. It just didn't happen that way. You stayed wherever you were born. No, with the poverty thing, what what changes that? What changes the feudal system are three factors. And you're probably thinking, Jimmy, what in the world does this have to do with the church? And reference? well, hang on, hang on. Because re- remember, at this point in history, there's not any difference between the government and the church. To be a part of the government, you have to be a member of the church. To be a member of the church, you have to be part of the government. I mean, it's one and the same. You have a church that promotes this way of thinking. I mean, keep in mind, the church is trying to hold on to its power just like every, every fiefdom, every lord who's out there. They're trying to hang on to their power as well. But there are, what I would say, three things 
that began to change this. The first one is the discovery of the new world in 1492. Now, if you're under 30, how many under 30s do we have? Show of hands. Okay. If you're under 30, you might be thinking, wait a minute. The new world was not discovered in 1492. There were already people in the new world. Okay. The Europeans discovered that there was a new world in 1492. So what in the world does that have to do with anything? All of a sudden, a new life, a new way of living, movement in your status was only a boat ride away. Because in the new world, while the, the laws of whatever European government is, or Spain or wherever, whoever was founding it, whoever was going to claim control over it, they didn't have an army there. They didn't have a police force there. They had no way of enforcing it. There wouldn't be the church there like it was where they're coming from. There's, no, there, there's an opportunity for you to make a new life. All right, here's a second factor. Literacy. So remember a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that people are starting to move from the countryside to go into the cities. And just in the fact that you're getting people together begins to increase your odds of you being exposed to different ideas. That's how ideas would go viral in those days. People lived out in the countryside. I mean, it could take years for something to get around. But new ideas, they seemed to go where the masses were and they were easily spread to people. Well, uh, you remember us talking last week about... uh, The Gutenberg Press. So, and I'll explain how this happens in a few minutes. But there is a new love affair, a new discovery of the Greek classics. And now Gutenberg is printing those things in mass. And so now people have access like they've never had before to the written word. And now that people are learning how to read and write and to think, they start to see education as a way out, a way out of poverty, a way out of the circumstances that they're born into. And then here's the third thing. It's the middle class. Because remember, up to this point, there hadn't been a middle class. There's been an upper class and a lower class. But you begin to have guilds. Um, we wouldn't, let's see, we would call them uh, oh, unions. Unions. And uh, so you have a carpenter's guild, you have a bricklayer's guild, you have a stonemason guild, you have a glassmaker guild. And these these people are beginning to have their own businesses. They're doing their own work. And they're they're keeping a portion of their money. And so now you have professional craftsmen. You have 
labor that's starting to organize itself and regulate itself. And you have people now that can look after you. And what, what starts to develop is there's, there's some people in between, the peasants at the bottom and the lords at the top. And, and now the comforts, the pleasures, um, a way of life that has only been available to the haves, those at the very top, some of those things are becoming available to the people who live in the middle. So there's a factor, okay? Here's a second factor. And some of these blend in a little bit. It's the Renaissance. It's the Renaissance. You know what Renaissance mean? Anyone know? What does the Renaissance mean? It means rebirth. There is a, a, a rebirth, a new interest in the ancient classics of Greek and Roman culture. Art, philosophy, literature. I'll, I'll explain in a few minutes how this comes about. How, how once again the West is exposed to these things. Um, it's a new way of looking at the world. It's a very uh, platonic, um, yeah, that's a good word, a, a very platonic way of looking at the world. Uh, Jack, so if you're not doing good today, man, why, why not? You and you came in, you know, we were playing around about, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right, or I'm not so good. Plato would say, listen, listen, you got to do whatever it takes to make you happy today because you'll be dead tomorrow. Or maybe not tomorrow, but the next day. You have today. You're not promised tomorrow. Make all you can out of today. They stopped thinking about a world to come and began thinking about the world that's in the here and now. I'll tell you, some of that's good, some of that's not so good. You can see it in the art, though. Um, like with Michelangelo, Raphael, when, when they paint a person's body... Um, They paint it more like it is rather than more like what you want it to be. They don't smooth out the hips. They don't streamline the belly. They just say, hey, this is what a woman looks like. Let's just appreciate the way she looks. Let, let's don't imagine her one way and then you get into the bedroom with her and see the reality. Let's just appreciate the reality of it right now. Let, let's, let's show human beings as they really are. And let's enjoy life right now. Food, drink, sex. In the here and the now. 
Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the next life. This is the life that really matters. Um, I, I'll, I'll just let that stand where it's at. Um, and then here, here's the third big category that makes this possible. And of course, you, you know this. You know more about this at this point than I do. But it's religion. What makes the Reformation happen? You have the poverty. You have the social and cultural things. You have the Renaissance. You have the rise of the middle class. But you have religion. And the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was a mess. It was such, such, such a mess. Listen, if if you think about the church as we've described it over the, the last several weeks, and then try to match that up with the church we see in the book of Acts. <laughs> it just, they're not the same, are they? I mean, they're, they're not even close. Um, for one thing, you have a pope. But listen, at some points during the Middle Ages, you have two popes. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, not only do you have two popes, You have three popes. And now the people are not really sure what they're following with one pope. But the pope they thought they were supposed to be following is now being held hostage uh, by the French. And so now you have an English pope and a French pope and a Dutch pope and... You, you don't know who you're supposed to follow. And so he, here's what happens. For most people living in Europe, let, let's, let's say lay people and, and many priests, not the bishops, not the cardinals, not the popes, but, but a lot of the priests, the local parish priest and your lay people imagined they would never again in their lives know the true church how would you how would you ever sort it out and listen not not only that they they wouldn't necessarily know how to recognize the true church because they they don't know Matthew Mark Luke and John everything they've ever heard about it was in latin if they were ever ever able to understand some of the Latin, they, they couldn't put enough of it together. Because remember, during the Middle Ages, people, for the most part, are uneducated. And so they've had to trust this pope and that pope and the local priest and the bishop or a cardinal. And it changes so much. And... It doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. But it's the tradition. It's what they're supposed. They don't. They don't know what to think or what to believe. And so, listen. Lots and lots of people, while they can't do anything about it, they're very disillusioned by what's going on in the church. Now, I want you to understand that God has still been at work. During all of this, you need to know this. You need to know that God is at work in the church in the past, 
you know, the, the period we're talking about here, getting into the 15th, 16th century, God's at work right now, and God will be at work in the church as long as the world stands. God is working in the church. It, it may seem like it's all falling apart, but it isn't. Now, John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man, the invalid, been an invalid for 38 years, ever since his birth. Jesus healed him. Remember that story? Remember our series of the Gospel of John? Everyone knew he was crippled because he'd been crippled from, from birth. And so he, he never had regular-sized legs. I mean, his upper body probably was always bigger than the, you know, his lower extremities. The, the muscles haven't developed, the tendons, those sorts of it just It's just not there. And everybody knows it because, again, this guy comes to the pool of Bethesda, which, by the way, is the reason a lot of hospitals are named Bethesda. Because it's a healing place. Um, some, some of uh, like the King James Version of the Bible, for example, says that an angel would come there in the morning and stir the water. And the first person in after the angel stepped out would be healed. Now, it's not included in some of the better manuscripts. So a lot of scholars think that was just added in later. But still, it was a healing place because if no one else was healed there, the invalid was healed there by Jesus. Everybody knew he was an invalid, right? 38 years he's been at that pool. He doesn't spend the night there probably, but he's brought out every day or every couple of days, and that's where he stays. Jesus, just thinking about where the place is at, when we go to the Holy Land in September, we'll go to the Pool of Bethesda. There's, um, there's a little church there uh, nearby that is dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus, her parents. So Jesus' grandparents. Now, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. But if, if Mary's parents lived there, that means that Jesus grew up seeing this man. Because when he would come to see his grandparents, they would pass by the pool of Bethesda and he would see this man. So he asked him one day, why aren't you healed? The man says something about not being able to get into the water. When it's stirred up, someone else always goes ahead of him. Jesus healed him. Did I mention that everybody knew this guy was an invalid? Everybody knew he was an invalid. There was no mistaking that this was a miracle. This guy is running around. He goes to the temple. You know, Jesus told him to go there, show himself to the, to the priest. And the priest, you, you would think that everybody's excited. Uh, but the, the Pharisees are not because Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath day. But you would still think that they would say, okay, oh my gosh, uh, John, you, you've been healed. 
praise the Lord, it's amazing. Wish you hadn't done it on the Sabbath day, but man, look, I mean, isn't that a technicality at this point? This guy's been healed. Mm -mm. They are bitterly opposed to Jesus by it. John says at the end of this story that that is the point where the Pharisees got it in their heart that they were going to do everything they could to destroy Jesus. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. Jesus responded back to them. He says in verse 17, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. He was talking about that day, of course, that Sabbath day. But in a larger sense, Jesus is saying that God is always working. He's working in people's hearts on the Sabbath day. He's working in the church, even though it's led by corrupt leaders. He's working in the church, even when the church had become this political machine and it had become a political machine, progressively so, ever since um, Emperor Constantine. God is working in the church, even when the leaders have lost sight of the cross and they've forgotten all about the Great Commission. And here's why. It's because somewhere there is always a person or a pocket of people who love Jesus and they're doing their best to follow him. It's because there's always a person, there's always a missionary somewhere who is looking for someone to tell them about Jesus. It's because somewhere in the world there's always an ordinary believer that is listening for the voice of God who is calling him or her to do something extraordinary with his or her life. God is always at work. Make no mistake about that. For, uh, for the next few minutes, I want to talk about some of the people, some of the beliefs, and some of the events that bring us to right here. You know, to do this, you know, it's like we've said with, um, with uh, history all along. There's background and context, right? So, so, like, the beginning of American independence didn't start in 1776, right? With the Declaration of Independence. Because all those guys didn't just meet up at Freedom Hall and say, Hey, you know what? Today would be a great day to declare our independence from Great Britain. No, it was several years in the making. I mean, I think the first Continental Congress was like 1772 or three or four, something like that. But there's a backstory. Well, there's a backstory with the Reformation. Again, can't talk about everyone, so let's talk about some of the key players. The first one I want to talk about is John Wycliffe. Ever heard of this guy? John Wycliffe, W Y C. L-I-F-F-E, John Wycliffe. Maybe you've heard of the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Yeah, they take their name after John Wycliffe. Uh, he lived in uh, like 1330 to 1384. He was a professor of philosophy at Oxford University in England. And uh, remember I said that uh, in the church, even when there are dark times, during the dark ages, God always has some good guys out there, some good gals out there that are loving Jesus and trying to do their best to follow him. John Wycliffe is one of those guys. Um, in Europe, the church was just so deformed 
that. People didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to believe. And one of the things that the church had been teaching is that the, the Pope, you know, like, like when you say the church, what are you talking about? Uh, when we started Rocky River Church 20 years ago, um, I can remember, I mean, early on, like we had been meeting for maybe just months and I started having people ask me, hey, when are you going to build your church? I would say, man, we're already under construction. They would say, oh, my gosh, you already? You just started that church like six months ago or a year ago, and you're already building? Yeah, we're already building a church. Well, where, where are you building it at? I would say Rocky River Elementary School. So, well, what does it look like? I said, it looks just like our community. And I would play with them a little bit because I knew what they meant. What they meant was, when are you going to start building a building? Well, there's a difference between a church and a church building. A church is the people. It's the people in that church. I mean, I've said it before. I'll I'll say it again. I mean, something happened to this church building. That wouldn't be the end of Rocky River Church, would it? But if Rocky River Church went away, it'd be the end of this building. Or it it would be sold. It would become a daycare. It would be something else. What makes this a a church is that there's a, a group of Christians who meet here and worship. The church is the people. Well, the the church up to this point had been defined as the pope, cardinals, bishops, priests. That's the church. Um, They also taught that it was the true church, pope, cardinals, bishops, priests, that could read and rightly understand and interpret the scriptures. John Wycliffe agreed with some of that. John Wycliffe said, yes, the true church is the only body, the only people who can rightly read, interpret, and understand the scriptures where he disagreed is on who makes up the church. John Wycliffe said that the church is made up of all of those who put their faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Listen, that might seem like just an academic exercise to talk about in here. In the 1300s, for someone to say this, I mean, you you could get killed for thinking it, if someone knew you were thinking it. But to say it, and and to be a, a philosophy professor at Oxford like Wycliffe, it, oh, it, I mean, it was heresy. Because now it's not it's not just the illustrious potentates who are the church, but it could be anybody. So if you're looking at the Book of Philemon, it would not only be Philemon who is the wealthy man who owns slaves, who has a 
church meeting in his home, it's not only Philemon who is a member of the church. It's Onesimus, the runaway slave, who's gone to Paul and now become a follower of Jesus. He, too, is a member of the church. And the church at that time, the church leaders, they just couldn't fathom that. Because they're still thinking in this feudal system, this cast way of, of thinking. Write this scripture passage down, James 2.18. This is what um, this is what Wycliffe would point to. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, you have faith in God. This person over here doesn't have faith in God, but he has deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. He would point to that scripture passage to make that a basis for who is a member of the church. Because listen, you could have a pope and not all of them were bad. But you could have a pope like the Borgia Pope. There's no way he is living anything that resembles a life of faith. And his works prove he doesn't have faith. Mean as a snake. Mean as a snake. Where over here, you could have this dirt poor man, which, which church leaders at that point were thinking just like the Pharisees that Jesus had to deal with. If you're in that caste system, if you're at the bottom of the barrel, it's because God hated you even before you were born. So he already thinks of you as scum. But now you have a man like Wycliffe saying... The Pope over there is as evil as hell. And if you want to see that, you just look at how he lives that hellish lifestyle he's living. But look at this poor peasant man over here. He loves Jesus with all of his heart. And what little bit he has, he gives away. Listen, we sit here and go, of course, of course. But not in Wycliffe's day. People might have been thinking it. But boy, it was, it was a struggle for him. Listen, Wycliffe taught that, and this is, this is where we're getting at. Wycliffe taught that every church member should strive to understand the Bible. That's why you have the Wycliffe Bible translators. They send missionaries all over the world. We've supported them as well. Um, I just forgot the guy's name. Uh, But he, he and his family are, they're interpreting the scriptures for a group of people that don't even speak a known language. They're having to learn their language so that they can interpret the scriptures into their language. That's the Wycliffe Bible translators. Wycliffe taught that every church member should strive to understand the Bible, which is why Wycliffe and his followers or his students would translate portions of the scripture into easy-to-read English. Uh, some called Wycliffe a hero. If you were a part of the church, you would have probably called him a heretic. Now, he wasn't martyred, 
because of his beliefs. He was having the heat put on him pretty good, but he died of a stroke in 1384 and was still in good standing with the church. Now, keep that on the back of your mind, Sue. I'm going to come back to that. After he died, Wycliffe's students, his pupils, they continued his work. They kept translating the Bible into English and other languages that people could understand it. They, they, it's not like they went out preaching in the name of Wycliffe. They went out preaching Jesus, but they were spreading Wycliffe's ideas. And um, these friends of Wycliffe or students of Wycliffe were sometimes called the poor preachers. Why would they be called the poor preachers? Because if you were not a part of the government-sponsored church, you weren't getting a paycheck for your preaching. You're just preaching for free. And it's a way of slandering them. It's a way of reminding everybody they're talking about uh, or everyone they're preaching to. It's a way for the church to remind them, hey, this is not a sanctioned group of people over here. So they're called the poor preachers. They're also called the lollards. L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Lollards. Uh, In Dutch, lollards means a mumbler. In Latin, it means darnell weeds. D-A-R-N-E-L-L weeds, if you care to know how to spell that. So this was a way of mocking them by calling them mumbleweeds. It's a way of degrading them and their message. Ah, you hear this guy over there. He says that these poor peasants over here are just as important to God as the pope or the bishop or the cardinal. It's all mumbling. And they're weeds. They just, you know how a weed is. You know how weeds are. They just grow up here. They grow up there. But pfft, it's just a weed. You pull it out of the ground. You throw it away. Or it dries up. It blows away on its own. But I'm going to tell you, it's these weeds that rock the world. So next guy I want to talk about is a man named John Huss. Now, the old spelling is J-A-N-H-U-S. Um, but I just spell it J-O-H-N-H-U-S. John Huss, one of my favorites. In fact, he may be my favorite. Uh, I like him almost as much as Martin Luther. Maybe even uh, maybe a little, a little more. So this guy's a little... Little later than uh, than Wycliffe, he lived from 1369 to 1415. Wycliffe's words, his ideas, his writings left England. I mean, they they bounced around in England, but they crisscrossed Europe. They made it to Bohemia, which would be the Czech Republic today, Croatia. And his ideas were starting to take hold when the Roman Catholic bishops squashed it 
and tried to get it out of Bohemia, but they didn't do it in time because Wycliffe's teachings, his writings, uh, made it to John Huss, and he embraced them. Now listen, what I, what I want you to see is, so God's doing something with this man Wycliffe over in England. But way over here in the Czech Republic, he's doing something in a man named John Huss. And these ideas come together. Now, they're not sitting around dreaming stuff up. What are they doing? They're reading the scriptures. They're reading the Bible. The things that John Wycliffe are writing about and teaching about are right out of the scriptures. John Huss is reading the same scriptures, although not in English, but probably some Germanic. Well, he he would have been reading them in Latin or he would have had the Latin Vulgate, which is a Latin copy of the of the scriptures. He's reading it for himself and he's understanding it. And now he's got these ideas from Wycliffe and it just grabs hold of him. Now, I like, I like the stories with the people. It helps you remember them and it helps you just wrap your mind around them. He, he was born in a little village called Husinek, which is H-U-S-I-N-E-C, Husinek. In those days, people were not given last names. Your last name was the village or the town that you're from. So he was called John Husnack. Uh, when he started getting a little bit older, he decided to shorten his name to the Hus. Now, Husnack means geese. So when he shortened it to Hus, his friends started calling him John Hus, which was John the Goose. Instead of John, who comes from the village of geese, he's John the Goose. All right, now just to get ahead of the story a little bit, he was burned at the stake for preaching the gospel, explaining the Bible. A hundred years later, Martin Luther, who was very familiar with Huss and his writings, He talked about the day that Huss was martyred as the day the goose was cooked. And that's still around with us today, right? Um, Huss was martyred on July 6, 1415. He was taken to the cathedral in Prague where he was dressed in his preacher's garments and then stripped of them one by one. This was his public defrocking. It's the removal of the preacher's garments. And so you would have interested, standby type people, but there would have been many of his members, people from his congregation, watching him being stripped um, at least down to his, 
his underwear, maybe completely naked, but humiliated. And this was all presided over by the Council of Constance, which was led by the Bishop of Constance. So after he was stripped down to nothing, he was doused with oil and burned. And as the soldiers were fastening him to the pole and preparing him to be burned alive, um, onlookers heard him pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy on my enemies. They said that while he was burning alive, he sang the Psalms. Now, now get this. The Council of Constance, they were the group that's kind of in charge of finding these heretics. And so they knew that Huss had been influenced by Wycliffe. And even though Wycliffe had been dead for 30-some years, uh, the bishops demanded that Wycliffe's bones be dug up and burned. Now, the idea there, and it's what everybody understood it as, and they got the point that it was a way of saying you're excommunicated, now you're going to hell. And so I just wonder how they rationalize that in their mind. Like, are they thinking he's been in heaven for 30 years and just all of a sudden everybody's like, where's Wycliffe? Where'd he go? He's not here anymore. But they were serious about this. They were trying to, to make a point. Now, the people loved Huss. They loved him. And uh, he was so popular that his executioners were afraid that people would gather up his remains and then use them as relics for their, their own movements. So they scooped up his ashes and threw them in a local lake. By the way, John's followers went back to Bohemia and they followed his teachings. He was their teacher. He was the one that had pointed them toward Jesus, so they're following him. They became known as the United Fraternity. Later, they became known as the Moravian Brethren, which was one of the greatest missionary agencies the world has ever known. Uh, they gave us men like John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan Church. So why did they do all of this to us? Why, why go to these lengths to stop him? Well, it's pretty simple, really. He explained the scriptures. He was, uh, he was born in this poor town, Husinek. I mean, you're named after geese. That's a place you ought to just hate right there, just because I hate these Canadian geese out here. <laughs> I'm looking through the window out there, those Canadian geese. I just hate those geese out there. Um, one way out of poverty was to become... A priest. He wanted out of poverty. So he went into the priesthood. Uh, got his bachelor's degree, master's degree, a doctorate 
I mean, he just excelled in his education. So as soon as he was ordained, which was 1401, he was assigned to preach at the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, a church that would seat about 3,000 people. And immediately, Huss began to break with the church's tradition. Specifically, he broke with the tradition of preaching in Latin and instead preached in the people's native tongue, which is helpful, right? Remember, he was under the influence of John Wycliffe. So whenever he would climb up into the spire of the platform there at Bethlehem Chapel to preach, he just explained the scriptures in the people's language. Rather than teach them uh, church traditions, he explained the Bible in a way that people could understand it. And this became a huge threat to the Catholic Church. What are they going to do about it? How do they stop him? They tried to censor him. That wasn't enough. So they excommunicated him. Huss kept preaching. In Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. I mean, they just let him back in. He would get up there and preach, and people would pack the place out just to hear this guy explain the scriptures. Now the church has a bigger problem. They've excommunicated this guy, they've already damned him to hell, but he's still coming in the church preaching. So, what they did was they announced that anyone who came to hear Huss preach could no longer receive Holy Communion. Nor could they receive last rites and a Christian burial. You remember we talked about the sacraments a few weeks ago? And listen, if you couldn't receive Holy Communion, you were, you were damned to hell. And then just to make sure of it, we're withholding your last rites. That's a powerful thing to be able to hold over someone. And... It, it was big stuff, and Huss decided that to spare the people this burden, he would leave Prague, which he did. He went out into the countryside, but on Sundays, he would stand up to preach, and people would fill up the countryside to hear him preach, and he would write, and he would explain the scriptures, and the people would take back everything he said and everything that he wrote down. And his most famous treatise is called The Church. And in, in this treatise, he talked about three major things. Number one, he said the church is made up of all believers. The church is made up of all believers. Remember who his influencer was? John Wycliffe. Who makes up the church? All those who are part of God's family. They put their faith and trust in Christ. So he taught that the church is made up of all believers. The second big thing he taught in this treatise is that the authority of the Bible is higher than the authority and the traditions of the church. The church is not going to be happy about this, are they? And then number three, and this is what, this is what got him killed. This is what got him burnt. He said that the Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, guys, again, that's not something that he made up. That, that comes straight out of the letters of, of Paul. He also declared that the Pope 
who through ignorance and lust of money was corrupt. That didn't make him popular either. But it was the declaring that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That's what got him burned. And listen, a hundred years later, by the way, um, you know, these guys were not next door neighbors. They were not even of the same generation. So there's no way to say, oh, they had all this planned out. Um, before he was killed, Huss said, you may kill this goose, but one day a swan will come, which just happened to be Martin Luther's nickname. But a hundred years later, when Martin Luther came onto the scene, the scene, his same battle was this battle over who is in charge of the church. Is it the Pope? Is it the bishops? Is it the cardinals? Or is it Jesus? Now, we have 11 minutes. You guys still good? Still good? I don't have a whole lot of a voice tonight, so I'm... All right, I'm going to keep going if you guys are good. I want to talk about a couple of events that helped make the Reformation happen. Emperor Constantine founded the city of Constantinople in 313 A.D. Remember that? Um, because it was, the, um, it was the emperor before him that decided to split the Roman Empire into two parts. You have the Western Empire, Eastern Empire. Constantinople was in the east. By 1453, so a thousand years later, Constantinople was all that remained of the ancient Eastern Empire. I mean, it was a significant city, but that was all that was left. On May 28, 1453, the Ottoman Turks, who had been who had been camped nearby and who had been growing for years, uh, they prepared to make one final big strike on Constantinople to just take it over. So that night, May 28th, the Christian citizens from Constantinople, um, some of the bishops that were still left behind from the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they forgot about all their division, and they decided to go to, the, um, to have communion, to have the Lord's Supper at the Hagia Sophia. You remember me showing you pictures of that church? It's the Church of Holy Wisdom. And that worship service that night would be the last Christian worship service that would ever take place there. Because the next day, May 29th, the Muslims conquered the city. That night, under the cover of darkness, a Muslim teacher walked slowly into the church. Not, not really sure what he would find. But he walked into the church of holy wisdom, went down to the altar, and declared these words. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And that church became a mosque and remained so until about the 1930s. Today it's a museum. 
So what happened to the Eastern scholars? I mean, they didn't just, like once they finished communion, they didn't just all go back to their apartments and wait for the Muslims to show up the next morning. They hit the trail. They took off. They went to the west. And what did they take with them? Everything they could carry. (laughs) But especially, they took what was most precious to them. And that was their ancient Greek documents. They carried their eastern doctrine or their their documents back with them. Their Greek manuscripts. See, for centuries now, for centuries, Christians in the Roman uh, or uh, Roman Christians in the Western Empire had neglected the Greek authors. I mean, back in Europe, they they hadn't been doing anything with Plato and Aristotle and art and those sorts of things. And these manuscripts from the East, they're what ignited this rebirth, this renaissance that began to take place in Europe. And it's their interest in Greek rhetoric and art and writing. And what do we mean by Greek rhetoric? The art of persuasion. It's not just telling you something. Here's the information, Terry. Hope this changes your life. It's a way of taking that, taking that information and explaining it to you and applying it to your life and your everyday circumstances and illustrating it in a way where you're like, there's no way I can't believe this. Um, literature, language, art, a, a way of looking at life a practical way of seeing everyday life. And like I said earlier, some good, some bad. Um, one of the things they had with them were, were Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And so now what they were able to do, up to this point, they had had they had had the Latin Vulgate. They had had a, a Latin translation of what was Greek and Hebrew. Now they could take their Latin New Testament and compare it with the Greek New Testament to see just how true and how pure it was. Because one of the things that these monks were never sure of is, hey, look. How do we know anything we're reading and what they're telling us is the New Testament is actually the New Testament? I mean, if the church is controlling all the information, how do you know what's, what's true and what isn't? Now they knew. Now they could see what really was in the Scriptures. And it, it just took off. It... It, like wildfire. And the printing press, like I mentioned earlier, you've got Gutenberg taking these manuscripts and he needs something to, to print. He needs to show people what this baby will do. So he's just pump, pumping out copies of these Greek documents. And so now what are people doing? They're reading 
they're learning. And they, they're, you know, there's the good and the bad. They're not so much thinking about the future, but you, you also have Christians who are influenced by this humanistic way, which doesn't have to be a bad thing. In some contexts, it certainly is, but they were, they were thinking about it from the Greek rhetoric perspective of, okay, how do I help you understand how to live this out today? How, how do, how, if, and, and if you think about it, it changes, it changes, it changes everything. It changes everything about the way you look at the scriptures. Because now, they had allegorized everything to death. Oh, this just means one day in the sweet by and by, and this just means one day out there. But we can't do anything out here. I mean, who's righteous? Who's holy amongst anyway? The Pope, he's the only one. How can you live this out? Well, the gospel teacher started explaining what the scriptures meant and how you live it out today. What you do with it, how it makes a difference today and for eternity. Right there is where we'll pick up with Martin Luther next week. Little monk, about this tall. Got a hammer. Beating on the the chapel door in Wittenberg. Um, got that Tim Tebow haircut. Remember when he got drafted? Who drafted him in the NFL? Denver. So he, he goes there and... Uh, you know, they always give these guys different haircuts or they do something to haze them. They gave him the Friar Tuck haircut where they big bald spot up here. and That would have been Martin Luther. A beer drinking German boy from Wittenberg said his wife made his favorite beer. Ladies, I want to tell you something. You want to, you want to have a good study and what, what, good, strong, tough women can be like. Go and read about Martin Luther's wife. And I just forgot her name. I want to say it's Aunt. Is it Catherine? That does sound right. I I think it is Catherine. But um, read about her. Read read about um, Susie Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon's wife. Al, Al Mohler just wrote a book about her that I have on my desk. I, it's hard to put it down sometimes because it's so interesting. Do you know Charles Spurgeon? What? Katharina? Okay, yeah, that, that's right. Okay. Um, Spur, do you know Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon? Um, he had more. He has more words published in the English language than any other person in history in the English language. His sermons, books, but mostly his sermons. People would buy them as fast as they were they were published, like pennies or nickels, something like that. But he he dealt with severe depression, 
He called it the black dog. He would say that the black dog is chasing him. And that, that let people know what he was struggling with at that time. Paul, he would write all of his sermons. Now, he would preach. He would write about three or four sermons a week. He preached about four days a week. But a Sunday sermon, he would write that on Saturday night, which goes against the whole Saturday night special thing of, you know, when you're writing sermons, don't write a Saturday night special. Although I have to tell you, some of my best sermons have been written on a Saturday night. But he, had, he would pace in his office to try to get the sermon you know, to come, you know, I don't know how to tell you, I don't know how to explain that to you, but he's trying to get that sermon out, and finally he's just exhausted, he lays down and goes to bed, woke up the next morning, and um, Susie gave him a sermon, she said, you, she said, during the middle of the night, you started preaching, I woke up and wrote it down, and this is what you were saying, he was preaching in his sleep. Paul, you ever take, uh, he, he smoked cigars, and he had a, a woman that got after him one time about smoking cigars. She said, you have a problem with smoking cigars. He said, no, ma'am, I have no problem. She said, well, you smoke cigars, what would you call a problem? He said, smoking two at a time. <laughs> he, uh... You know, sometimes, like I've been to uh, John Wesley's house. We'll talk about Wesley in a few weeks. Wesley was um, uh, um, what do they call him? Something rider preachers, um, circuit rider preachers. And in his his home in London, they have a museum with a lot of his things in it. They have his saddle, and they have a a note up there about how many miles he he kept up roughly with how many miles he had been on a horse. And I know this is going to sound terrible to say, but like, can you imagine like hemorrhoids and things like that 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 man dealt with? I mean, the the, the things that that they dealt with and the the non creature comforts that they had to survive without. It's like if you read John Calvin, who's going to come up next week. Um, if, you, if you read some of his stuff, it sounds a little short and a little nasty at times. Not nasty, but crass. Like, to the point. And uh, I heard a, a John Calvin scholar. I mean, this guy had given like 40 years of his life to studying Calvin and um, he said, what you have to remember about a guy from Calvin and Luther's time period is that they, they felt bad all the time. Like on a day where you might call in sick to work because you have a low-grade fever, that might be the best they felt that one day all year long. You know, they had worms. They had all kinds of stuff that they dealt with. And uh, like Spurgeon, you know, he, all these books, and he's really a famous preacher, but a portly guy, which I appreciate that, short and kind of fat, gives me hope. And um, he, uh, 
he was sitting on a train because, I mean, he was constantly riding a train. He was taking a train from London to somewhere in France. And, you know, like if you, when you get on the plane now, you, you pass by the, the business or the first class section to go back to coach. Same way on a train. You enter through the first class compartment. And uh, um, Spurgeon was sitting there in the first class section. And a younger preacher walked in and he was passing through to go to coach. And he took a shot at Spurgeon, which was a dangerous thing to do because Spurgeon was quick. And he said, um, he looked down at Spurgeon and he said, I'm saving the Lord's money. Spurgeon looked up at him and said, I'm saving the Lord's servant. I get that. Um, I think it's different for preachers today. Um, you know, there might be, some, you know, you, you might be sitting around the church one night on your anniversary teaching a Bible study. But if that's the worst thing that happens to me, I'm, I'm good. But you, you, think, you think of what men and women have, have paid, the price they've paid to teach the Bible, to tell you what it says, to get it translated into English like Wycliffe or German like Luther or some European Saxonic language like Huss. I mean, he, he's burned at the stake for that. It's quite a sacrifice, isn't it? Well, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for an opportunity to gather up like this and learn together and spend a little time together. We pray for those who couldn't be here with us tonight for whatever reason. We ask that you'd watch over them and take care of them. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for, for being at work for being at work in your church, even when it's being led by flawed leaders. I think on some level that gives us all a little bit of hope because we ourselves know that we're flawed. Hopefully we're not leading people astray on purpose, but every person in this room is aware that he or she is a sinner. So we're glad that you work in spite of us. And we're grateful that you worked through us. I think probably a mistake we make when we study a period of history, when we think about a John Huss or Martin Luther or John Wycliffe, we tend to think about only the things that make them heroic. But they were sinful men. They had their struggles, their faults, things that they dealt with as well. But in spite of those things, you, you work in their lives and through their lives. And so we know that you'll do the same with us. And we ask for that. 
We, we pray, Lord, that if you come back for us tonight or tomorrow, whenever that is, that you would find us faithful. That we would always, no matter what's going on in the world around us, we would always be that person that, in spite of everything else that's going on around us, we're being faithful to you and loving you and serving you as best we can. Help us to always be the person who's looking for someone else to tell about Jesus. And don't let us be sheepish. You know, we we pray for safety, but we don't pray for safe lives. We pray for safety and that we don't want to get killed in a car wreck on the way home tonight. But Lord, don't let us be cowards who shrink back from living out the Great Commission. Don't let us live such safe lives that we don't take risks. Help us to be sacrificial Christians. Help us to follow your son Jesus as closely as we possibly can. It's in his great name that we pray. Those who agreed said, Amen. Amen.